This is your host, Natalie Allport, and welcome back to the All In Podcast. If you are new here, thank you for checking it out, and I hope that you hit subscribe so that you won't miss any other episodes. Now, today I am joined by an incredible guest. I think his storytelling is very compelling, so I really hope that you'll be enjoying this episode, you'll be enthralled with this episode, because I know I was. Now, his name is Michael Shao, and he is a mountaineer. Now, he has recently written a book called A Story of Karma. Now, you would think that karma is, you know, kind of that whole sense in the universe of what you put out comes back to you. It's a little bit about that, but it's also about a young girl whose name is Karma. He went into the Himalayan mountains in northern Nepal with his wife. He had this mountain that he had planned to hike, right? This is like a big goal for him. And what happened was it just wasn't to be. He wasn't able to hike this mountain or to mountaineer and summit this mountain that he wanted to but it led them into this whole series of coincidences and things that really were were meant to be to happen on his trip where they met a family, they met these two young girls, one of them named Karma, um, and there's an incredible story about what his wife and him experienced as well as what they, what they did and what they're still continuing to do for that family, basically co-parenting this young girl. So it's a really incredible story, but we actually start the podcast off talking mostly about mountaineering some of the mindset aspects of mountaineering, seeking discomfort and living in discomfort. There's so many really cool things that you experience in adventuring and being an athlete in these mountains where you're kind of exposed to the weather, you're exposed to nature. There's just so many things going on. So I really enjoy touching into that story and then going into the story of what his book covers. So I think you'll really enjoy this episode. And without further ado, let's go all in. Welcome back to the All In Podcast. Mike, I'm so glad to sit down and have you here all the way from Squamish, BC. Natalie, I'm stoked. Yeah, thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, how's life going over on the West Coast right now? I think we're kind of, uh, I see people outdoors and still doing things. We're like in different worlds from the East to West Coast, it seems. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. I mean, it's kind of, um, you know, obviously with COVID and, and all that, you know, people were kind of um, staying more isolated and indoors in some cases. But um but yeah, fortunately, I mean, being on the West Coast, it's uh, we've got an abundance of nature and mountains and ocean hiking, you know, whatever you're into. Um, so it's kind of easy, especially being in Squamish. Yeah. It's pretty easy to uh, to do things out there on the trails and um, and just get out, whether it's on a mountain bike or trail running or whatever, uh, hiking up a mountain. And uh, so, yeah, fortunately, my wife and I, we've been quite active throughout this whole period. And it's um, it's actually been kind of fascinating to to watch it um, evolve because one of the things I noticed is that, um, you know, just a lot of people spending more time with um, with their families and with their kids and, you know, just getting out there in nature. Um, so, yeah, I mean, COVID's obviously thrown a wrench into many things, but uh, I think in some ways um, there have been some silver lining, linings as well. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think around here, actually, like the house prices for places outside of the city are just skyrocketing because people really just want to be out there with nature because they realize, for example, um, I actually moved in January to Chelsea, which is just across 
the Quebec border of Ottawa, where it's basically like mountains, not mountains like in BC, but, you know, hills, um, nature, trail running, river, all these things. But you can go just freely um, out there by yourself, right? And just be isolated and go on the river, go for a hike and do these things that you couldn't do in a city, especially when you're not supposed to leave the city, you're not supposed to travel. Um, So I think it is a good point that people are really rediscovering their relationship with nature and how important it is to be able to get outside every single day. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, it's funny because I got into mountain biking this year too. Uh, just, I had a little, a little injury on my ankle and so I couldn't really trail run. So I'm like, okay, well, what can I do? And, and started mountain biking. And, um, but then there's, I just discovered that there's this kind of global shortage on uh, mountain bikes yeah. <laughs> because the de- apparently the demand has skyrocketed, you know, just more and more people wanted to get into that. And, uh, and I guess supplies, you know, gone down. So, um, yeah, it's just, it's interesting to see, yeah, people kind of, as you say, reconnecting more with nature, getting out more, keeping active. Um, yeah, no, I think it's, I think it's been a good thing. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Bikes have been crazy. Um, yeah, I work with a, a bike shop. They're one of my clients and it's been insane. Last year, they couldn't keep bikes on the shelf to this year. I think they got some Rocky mountain mountain bikes in. They posted mm-hmm. it. They said, okay, 9 30 AM. They'll be available. There was a lineup before 9 30 AM. It's crazy. I never would have thought that. <laughs> yeah. It's not the, not the best year to get into biking this year or last year, because it's a, it's a big struggle to get it. But I think it's also, it's just been parts. It's been hard. Like, I think there's been car parts that have been an issue too, like industry wide. There's been a lot of just manufacturing. I think that's affected. It's just interesting. We we don't think we think like okay, well, we all want bikes, so we want to go outside. It's like, well, why can't they make more bikes? Because you know you would think that they would know by last year's demand to make more bikes for this year. But it seems mm. that just everything in the world is so interconnected. Which I'm sure you, being a mountaineer, know that in the world of nature. But it's interesting about how our world of manufacturing is the same. Yeah, for sure. For sure. It's brought a lot to light and kind of, you know, what we take for granted as well sometimes. I mean, just the fact that we can't get things or the fact that, you know, again, pieces aren't coming together because of the the whole pandemic and, and that sort of thing. Um, and it's kind of made me look at, um, you know, how good we have it here as well, because uh, I mean, I guess we'll get into it, but uh, we have this little family, this little relationship with um, with this family in Nepal and and just kind of you know, very deep relationship with these two girls over there, uh, my wife and I, and, and just seeing what they've been going through, uh, you know, throughout the whole, like kind of contrasting that with the, you know, some of the kids here and what we're going through in North America. And, uh, you know, for example, in, uh, in Nepal and Kathmandu, they're going to a school there. Uh, the schools had to close because of the virus, but, um, you know, here, Kids, for example, okay, they have their laptops, they have their phones, they have internet, um, but they're, you know, they don't have, in some cases, they've had to go back to their villages and, you know, don't have electricity, let alone the internet, and then don't have, you know, phones and and laptops and that sort of thing. So it just it makes me think about those equity gaps again, and just sort of like, yeah, I mean, the pandemic, it's created these, um, these challenges, but we don't have, not everybody has the equal resources to address those challenges. So I think that's something good to think about as well. That's a great point. I think at the start of this pandemic, I know at least myself, I was hopeful it was something that would bring everybody together, right? Like we have this global thing to fight as humankind. So let's let go of our differences, but it's actually kind of um, shone a, shone a light on the differences that we have with social classes, different countries, 
tons of problems have obviously came up in the past year with conflicts um, mm-hmm. between, you know, humankind and different countries and different things. And we forget that, you know, we are so lucky that we can be here and talking over Zoom and have a webcam and have a microphone when obviously, yeah, there's kids who they need those years. Those years are very important to them to have the social connection, to be uh, learning things and progressing. And they have no laptop and no access to these things. So I I would actually, I would love to to know what are some of the biggest differences that you've seen between that that family that you're in contact with versus kind of people in North America? Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's um, it's fascinating. I mean, a lot of it comes out in the details too. Um, Chantal and I, we, my wife Chantal and I, we've been keeping very close, uh, closely connected to the. There's a school there in Kathmandu that we uh, that we got connected to because of this relationship with this family and their and the two daughters, Karma and Pemba. And, um, and so we've been going back to the school every eight to 10 months. This is since 2012. Our first trip to Nepal was back in 2012. And so after that, almost every year, we've been going back. And, and obviously with COVID, we haven't been able to go there in the last, uh, you know, two years, but, um, but yeah, no, it's, it's, um, it's fascinating because you start to pick up differences in terms of the values that are being cultivated in the children, um, you know, how we're raised here versus how, uh, you know, kind of the priorities and values that they're raised there uh, with. And, uh, you know, for example, um, here, uh, we tend to celebrate the individual. Uh, we tend to put, you know, the individual on the on the front of the magazine, so to speak. Um, whereas there, it's all about celebrating more of the, um, the community, you know, community success. Uh, you know, here we tend to focus more on, um, you know, what can we personally get? What can we accumulate? Right. Uh, there it's more about, you know, what can we give? What can we share? Um, you know, another difference I noticed was, um, uh, you know, we tend to talk about our achievements quite openly here, right? You know, just almost, right. uh, you know, sometimes boasting a little bit about what we've done, not in a bad way, but just like, being proud of it. Um, and uh, and they're, they're very humble, right? I remember hearing one story about, um, there's this one woman, uh, Sherpa woman, and she was like this very experienced climber sitting around a table. Uh, this bunch of people had just come off of Mount Everest and uh, all these um men and women kind of talking about their climate, like from, from the sort of the Western world, talking about their climbing feats and like just coming off of Mount Everest. And this, this one Sherpa woman was kind of sitting there quiet. And one of the guys turns to her and says, Oh, you know, do you, do you climb too? And, and she's like, yeah, I climb a little bit. And, and, and meanwhile, she is holds like one of the record, she's one of the record holders for the, you know, the summits of Mount Everest. Oh, and she, and like, they had no idea, but uh, just things like that. Right. <laughs> so um, it's kind of funny how you contrast the differences and, and that's come out too with the whole pandemic. And, and we saw it with the earthquake, you know, they had the devastating earthquakes in 2015, uh, thousands of people uh, killed, you know, hundreds of thousands displaced. Um, but, you know, the way that they came together, right. I think anyone who's been to Nepal will know um that yeah i mean it's it's a it's 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 a third world country it's one of the poorest countries in the world um and and Kathmandu is one of the most polluted cities in the world but um but the people are very strong mm. like they're very strong they just they just keep keep at it they just keep working they can't rely on for example the government for anything they just have to take take matters in their own hands um and at the same time um they're very gentle right uh, it's they have this sort of gentleness about them. Their personalities is kind of like um, uh, softness or, or 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 sort of light spirit. They're light spirited, right? So I think you know that's part of the reason why anyone who's been to Nepal, who's connected with the Nepali people, will know that yeah, they're, they're, there's kind of like this um, this uniqueness about them. You know, people tend to fall in love with the country as a result of the of the people there. 
Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And it's cool to see in some of these communities how they do have that mindset versus, for example, if someone what had that record here, that would be the first thing in their Instagram. Video. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah like, exactly. Yeah, all over the internet, Instagram, exactly. and social media. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like, that's the first thing you would say to somebody. Like, I hold this record for Everest, blah, 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 blah. But it's, it also is, it's, it is cultural because that's what opens up doors for you here in North America, right? Like, you have hmm. to say that because that's what's going to open up your opportunities versus there. It's like, you're trying to open up opportunities for your whole community. And you're not thinking about the individual, like you discussed, which is, I, I think is a very unique mindset. And I think it, it must correlate with levels of happiness, at least from what I've, I've seen in stories told and even in stats. For sure. Yeah, no. And, and yeah, cause that actually, you remind me of, of something else that I noticed. Um, and again, it's, it's uh, neither is good or bad, just, um, just kind of differences. Right. Um, and one of the things that I, I noticed was um, this whole idea of in the West uh, kind of in our world over here, we tend to, from a very young age, um, set these, these expectations for our life. Uh, these goals, like we have this, okay, you know, I have to do this. And in order to do that, I got to do these things. And we kind of have this whole plan sort of mapped out. Right. And, and like you said, um, in order to, as part of that plan, we have to kind of, yeah, showcase our, our successes and, you know, kind of put ourselves out there and, and everything like that. Um, whereas there, I mean, especially in the villages, um, you know, high in the mountains, they're not thinking about the next five years or you know, even two years, they're thinking about, um, you know, is, is, am I going to have a harvest for this winter? Mm. Um, you know, what's next week going to be like? They're thinking about putting food on the table. Um, so very much kind of much more in the present, um, living much more in the net, like not getting caught up in these uh, in these future expectations, because I think sometimes that can create suffering, you know, if there's a gap between reality and expectation. So so they don't really um, really get caught up in that. They kind of live more presently. Um, and at the same time, you know, talking to some of my friends over there, they're like, well, that can create challenges too, because they're just always kind of going with the flow. So, you know, <laughs> it's, just, yeah. so it's just a to totally different, you know, worlds here, but, but I think somewhere perhaps in, in between lies the, uh, the right way. Yeah, that, that totally makes a lot of sense. I mean, you see that with relationships of two people, one person who goes with the flow, someone who's the planner, um, and that can even cause conflicts. The, the planner is like, no, 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 come on, like, you got to do this and achieve this. And that person's like, no, chill out, like, relax. <laughs> and there's anxiety between both parties. But it it is interesting. I think it's it's also the choices. Like we have so many choices and options here and having so many choices and options can leave you with so much anxiety versus mm. like, at least just, even though you have these real problems of like, will I have a harvest? Will I have access to food, the pollution, these things, but you're very much focused on in the moment. And I think that's probably, I don't know if, if you would uh, agree with this, but in like mountaineering and things that you do, um, chances are you don't have that many options. You only have the things that you brought with you. You only have like, you're climbing this route. Uh, there's not like, oh, should I check my phone and do this? Oh, today I have the option of going to work or staying at home or, right? Like there's, there's you're forced in the moment through some of the things that you do, I would assume. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. And that, that's what I love about, um, that's what, well, I mean, I guess it would be similar for other sports, whether it's snowboarding or, 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 or climbing mountains. But um, what I love about getting out there in the mountains is it just really kind of pulls me out of my own mind, right? It just, yeah, you have to be focused, you have to be dialed in, um, you have to be aware of you know, kind of kind of what your, your, your skill level, um, you know, what you've brought with you, your environment. Um, but it, you know, one of the biggest things that's taught me is um, 
just to get out of my mind, like uh, get it out of my own mind. I mean, just the fact that I'm, I'm a very small piece mm -hmm. to this whole larger uh, picture. I mean, you mentioned, yeah, interconnectedness, this whole larger interconnected web, um, you know, around me, I'm a very just tiny, tiny speck in that whole spectrum. Right. Um, and so I think that, that kind of creates a unique perspective as well, because uh, it kind of helps take some of the blinders off. It helps us realize that, um, yeah, it's not always about us, um, you know, our decisions, how they can affect others as well. And, and perhaps, you know, again, maybe it's not so much about what we can get, but like, you know, how can I help? How can I give as well? So, um, so that's, that's kind of, you know, one of the bigger things it's, it's helped teach me too. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. What, what actually pulled you into mountaineering in the first place? Like where, when did you first discover mountaineering and how did you fall in love with it? Yeah, that's a great question. I um, well, I mean, growing up on the West Coast, right? So I've always been surrounded by mountains and nature and the ocean. And um, but growing up, you know, when I was a when I was a kid, uh, my dad had one of those camper vans, uh, you know, when you could pop the top up, and uh, and he would take you know my sister and I all throughout North America. We'd go on these camping trips through like Yosemite and and down the Oregon coast and and just, you know, the Rockies and that sort of thing. So I guess, you know, the mountains were kind of always there in my face, um, you know, growing up. And I just kind of, I don't know, it kind of grew a very interested, like intrigued by them, right? This, you know, what are these big, you know, big rocks, these big mountains? Like, it's very fascinating, uh, very inspiring. Um, and um, and I remember when, one day when I was, um, when I was 17, I, uh, I had this friend who, uh, he was a very experienced mountaineer. And we were out on a hike one day and he said, you know, Mike, I, I just want to take you up a mountain. Um, and as a 17 year old kid, I had no idea what that meant, <laughs> but I thought, you know what, this is, this is awesome. Yeah, let's do it. Let's go. Um, and so he lent me his ice axe and his crampons, uh, his harness. And, and we went out, um, up this, uh, this mountain and it was a pretty technical climb. Like I, I'd never done anything like that before. Um, but I remember climbing this sort of very steep iced up snow slope and, you know, he was just calling down. He's like, Mike, just, you know, kick in with your left foot, kick in with your right foot, plunge your ice axe. And so I'd be going kind of in that motion. And, and for hours we were you know, climbing this thing. And I remember we were kind of getting towards the top and the, um, the sunrise, the sun was just coming out. Oh, wow. um, and it, and I, I stopped to kind of catch my breath. And I remember looking over my shoulder and on the horizon, the there were all these distant peaks um you know just kind of being illuminated by the in these orange and purplish hues with the sunrise and and i just remember in that moment i i just thought to myself wow i mean like there is this this whole world up here that is out of our day-to-day -day life and that is only accessible by our will to climb Mm -hmm. Um, and that for me was just it. Like I, I just, something in me switched on and I just thought mountaineering, mountain climbing, coming up here for these brief moments into this other world. Um, that was just it. And I, I just kind of dove into it with full intensity and, and never really looked back. Yeah. Wow. I think it's, it must be so difficult to live like so close to the mountains, like people do in Vancouver, that whole area and to look up and then never go. You know, like there has to be this burning curiosity inside. And I know I definitely feel it whenever I drive past mountains, um, even here, you know, we have some hills, but some hills that aren't, you know, ski hills or don't have paths up. I'm like, 
it just, it's hard to look at and not want to go up and like see what's there. And especially mm-hmm. explore, you think how many people really have gone up because like you said, you need the will to go up there. Yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. And it creates like this really interesting kind of what we were talking about. Like it creates this very interesting perspective too. Right. I mean, it you know, yes, you're climbing higher, but it, it allows you to go um, deeper in yourself. Um, so you get these vistas, um, not only these kind of external vistas, but you get this wider vista within your own self. And, uh, and, and then that's a new place to explore as well. So I think that's, I mean, there's been a ton of literature on mountaineering and, and, you know, people having these life changing experiences and all that. And I think that's part of the reason because, you know, you do, yeah, you do climb higher, but you, you're also at the same time kind of opening up something, you know, something's reciprocating inside of you as well. Um, and, and I think that's one of the really cool things about it too. Yeah. What what do you go through mentally when you're doing some of these big climbs and it's getting really tough, whether it's, you know, tough on the breathing, tough on the body, like what pushes you to, to continue onwards and like, what do you go through mentally through that process? Yeah. I mean, it's, um, I guess it's, it's changed kind of over time. I mean, my relationship with the mountains has changed over time. Uh, when I was younger, I, um, it was all about getting to the summit. <laughs> I was just, I was, just I was very driven on on getting to the top, and and um, and you know, kind of harder on myself as well for like you know I should be climbing better. I should be like working on my skills and this and that. Um, never like losing respect for the mountains because that's very important. I mean, the mountain. Um, somebody said to me once, you know, the mountain doesn't have respect for us, so we have to have respect for it. Um, so I, I never you know lost that, but but just kind of had this different relationship. It was more intense, more sort of, you know, you just kind of, yeah, trying to get up there. And, um, and now it's more about, um, you know, yeah, I go out, if I go out by myself or go out with friends, it, it is, you know, I do have that intention, right. To get up there, but, um, but it's not really about that. It's about, you know, just kind of being out there in nature. And, um, you know, if, if I'm with friends, it's about like, yeah, the quality time we're spending together, the conversations that we're having. Um, this summit is kind of, sort of a secondary uh, objective where, you know, it's not even really a big deal if we don't even get up there. Um, so I actually, if I think about it, I've only, I could probably count on, on, on one hand, the number of times that I remember standing on a summit, wow. um, you know, versus like what I remember are all the moments in between, right. All those like little moments that, um, you know, en route. Right. Um, and those are the moments that have kind of shaped me in terms of who I am. Um, but you know, you think about getting onto this top of a, of a mountain, like usually it's just, a, you know, let's take a few photos. <laughs> We're up here. Okay. Let's get down now. Um, so it's, it's not really this, um, epiphany that, uh, that a lot of people might think it is, but, um, but yeah, no, I mean, what goes through the mind now, um, a lot of it's just being present with um, with the natural surroundings, just kind of having that heightened sensitivity, um, you know, being aware, like the, that's what one thing I love about getting out there as well. The awareness, um, you know, kind of gets heightened. Um, I, I sort of tap into, um, you know, different levels of, of, again, not, I don't really dissect it too much, but just different levels of, energetic vibrations that is, that is out there and, and sort of, you know, connecting with, with my own self and, and, um, and just sort of, you know, observing that and seeing what surfaces within me as well. So yeah, it's, it's just, it's, it's a, it's a meditation, I guess you could say it's, it's um, yeah, it's, it's just sort of a, my way of, of deeply meditating. 
Right. Well, what you said right there about the difference between the climb and the summit, that really hit hard. And I think it really relates to both life, but also to sport and for athletes, because we get so focused on that gold medal or that success, the job, the summit in our, mm. in our minds that we completely forget about the process to get there. And it just interesting how we lose ourselves in this process of just focusing on the end result that when we've accomplished it, often it doesn't feel as good as we thought. <laughs> and what we remember is those times in between. And often I think a lot of people, they'll share that they have regret about not enjoying that process in between and not having spent more time in the now in that process. Yeah, I think that's a huge point because it's like, it goes back to that quote. I remember hearing once, um, you know, how we spend our time, how we spend our days is, uh, is how we spend our life. So like exactly to your point, I mean, you know, yeah, if we, if we're so fixed on that goal, like what, what are, what are we doing? I mean, who are we becoming as we work towards that? Right. I mean, it's good to have goals in some cases and, you know, but, but I think it's also important to pay attention to, you know, what, what is the intention? Like, why is that goal important? Um, you know, what's the why behind, behind it? And, um, and who are we becoming as we pursue that? Why? Mm, yes. That's such an important reminder right there for anybody listening, whether you're an athlete, you're, you have any goals, no goals. Like <laughs> if, you, if you're someone who's community focused versus individual focus, like we talked about before, I think it just so incredibly important. Um, before we get into like the whole story of karma and your book and that that climbing journey, um, I would love to to dig in a little bit more about your climbing in general. First, what does your day to day look like, and how do you prepare and train for these climbs? Um, well, I, I think it's a it's a lifestyle, right? It's a practice, and, a, and the practice becomes a lifestyle. So you know, I think it's a lot of it has has to do with setting, you know, small objectives, whether it's, um, you know, what, what I do on, on the local trails here, I, I, I tend to have like just time timing myself sometimes, or, or just have like little objectives that, so that I, I can kind of, you know, always keep at a certain level of, uh, of fitness, right. both in my mind and my body. So it's, it's not so much about, I mean, people are always asking me like, well, what are you training for? It's like, well, I'm not really training for anything. I'm just training <laughs> like to stay at a certain level of ability. Right. Yeah. Um, but one of the things that I've learned about, um, just, you know, I mentioned this little injury that I had and, and, you know, just getting into mountain biking. And one of the things that that's taught me recently is just, you know, I just, kind of want to do things build from the ground up in in you know the, the from the proper foundation right um rather before I, I maybe i just launched myself into something but this has taught me it's like okay well i just want to make sure i'm building the right technique and uh, and, and i'm kind of treating this as having a, i have got all the time in the world i don't have to worry about you know hitting a certain run at by a certain date i'm just kind of like you know i just want to make sure i build the proper technique and, and just have fun and just i'm just i'm still enjoying myself out there right it's not so much about the stress of of performance and that sort of thing um as it may have been in the past right so um yeah so i, I kind of constantly maintain um a certain level of fitness you know in my mind in my body um and just that comes with um with just having such a close proximity to, to nature, I think, and, and generally have, you know, certain mountain objectives every year that there's certain things that I, I'd like to climb. And, and, you know, some of them are mountains I know very intimately and, and just, you know, again, just being out there on a familiar terrain, um, which can be very different depending on the conditions as well. So just keeping myself grounded in that way. Um, but yeah, it's, as I said, it's, it's, it's more of a lifestyle, I guess you could say, it's just, you know, just keeping, keeping active and, um, 
and just, you know, sometimes you got to celebrate the small wins too, like the little, uh, the little, uh, you know, each little summit or each little climb, even if you don't get to the summit, but yeah, just getting out there. Right. And I mean, mountaineering is, is a dangerous sport. I think people often forget that they think, Oh, you're just going up a mountain, but, uh, there's cliffs. There's obviously Mm -hmm. like ice. There's, there's tons of things, uh, all playing a part. So this is a two part question. One is how do you overcome or deal with fear of, of some of these things? And then two, have you had any like really crazy near death experiences? And then how have you, if you have, how have you like mentally recovered from those? Right. Yeah. I mean, fear is an interesting one um, because fear can help us as well. Uh, And I think, yeah, it's, there's a Japanese term that kind of stuck with me, which literally translates to clinging on for dear life. (laughs) And, uh, (laughs) and it's, they, they call it the death grip because, and, you know, I think about that, you know, in climbing because, we, you know, you do not want to get to the death grip, right? right. That's usually a sign that you're just going to burn through your energy. You're probably going to fall, um, you know, and I think that applies to just everything in life as well. But, um, but yeah, you know, so you never want to get into a scenario where you're too far outside of your comfort zone, where your fear is just crippling, um, where it's just going to like cripple you. But there are times where you're you know, slightly, if I had to draw a diagram and you're like kind of slightly outside of your comfort zone, which I think is a good thing, um, where, you know, that fear arises, but you have the ability to kind of use the fear as, because fear can be, you know, it creates energy, right? It creates force. And, and if you can channel that energy into having a constructive, um, you know, output uh, versus, you know, a destructive, uh, you know, effect, I think that can be a very powerful thing. So for example, when I'm rock climbing, if I'm, if I'm leading this, this, you know, certain pitch and, um, and, and, you know, I mean, there've been times where it's been one that I've led before, but it just happened on that day that I, my mind is not as sharp or something's off or, you know, just, just an off day. <laughs> and, and suddenly like I can feel my, my fear arising and I'm getting like present to the exposure and uh, I can feel my leg, you know, start twitching and I'm like, Oh my God, is my shoe going to stick? And like, you know, so all these thoughts start (laughs) kind of like rolling around in the mind. And, um, and it's just a matter of quieting that again, just saying, no, sometimes I talk to myself, you know, sometimes I just kind of like, you know, channel that fear into like, okay, you've got this and then just go for it. And, you know, as long as it's not like shooting in the dark or something, but like, you know, you know, you've got this and you can channel that fear into energies and make you, you know, sort of get through it. But yeah, so fear is an interesting one in that regard. Um, and then uh, in terms of times in the mountains, uh, you know, one that comes to mind was, um, it was actually, a, you know, really interesting experience. We, um, it was a local mountain, you know, nothing like by far not the most difficult or, or technical mountain I've ever climbed. But, um, you know, one that I was intimately familiar with. Um, But I remember one day I was going out there with a couple of friends and actually it was the night before I started getting this weird feeling like something foreboding or bad or, you know, just a bad feeling about it. And um, I thought, well, what's that? And and um, I thought maybe in the morning it would go away. I woke up in the morning, didn't go away. Um, My friends showed up. I thought, okay, well, let's just go. And um, we're kind of walking up the the trail, like beautiful old growth, um, forest and and that sort of thing. So the feeling kind of dissipated a bit. Um, and then we got to this, um, kind of like this toe of the, of the glacier 
Um, and I remember we, we put our crampons on and the moment I put my crampon onto the glacier, the, that feeling came back in full force. And, uh, I was thinking like, Ooh, what's this? So I just, I took my foot off and I'm like, guys, I'm out. I'm just going to stay here. You guys can keep climbing. I'm just going to chill out here. I'm totally happy. And, and they're, you know, they suddenly looked around like, Oh, you know, Mike, what do you, you know, I was kind of spooking them. They're like, do you see something that some undetected danger? Um, and I couldn't verbalize what I was feeling. So we were just having this very rationalized conversation about um, dangers and risk. And, and we thought, okay, well, why don't we just go for 10 minutes and then we'll reassess and then, and then go from there. And, and so I thought, okay, well, that, that seems to make totally logical sense. I can't tell you why I'm feeling this feeling. So I'm like, okay, let's just go. So we would do that. And we got kind of towards the top of the glacier um, where it sort of folded onto the rock and it got very steep. Um, again, it was sort of that blue ice, um, but we were, you know, kicking in with the crampons and, and, um, and I felt, you know, fine. I mean, it was terrain that I was comfortable on, um, but up behind us were coming these two other guys. And I remember my, my friend, one of my friends got onto the rock. My second friend got onto the rock. And then I was just kind of, you know, a few feet from getting over there. And, um, out of the, like the kind of the, 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 the corner of my ear, I, I heard the sound of one of the guys, one of these other guys, um, falling and, uh, fell about 200 meters. And I looked over my shoulder and I was watching him fall like 200 meters down the mountain. Wow. And, uh, I was like, Oh my God, like, I just kind of froze. And I remember um, looking back to my friends and they were watching it too. And they looked like they had just seen a ghost. And uh, so I called down to this guy, I'm like, are you okay? And, and somehow miraculously he was okay. Um, I mean, he, he broke his arm and gashed up his hip and uh, ended up getting hypothermia, but he was alive. Um, and, and then I, I saw him like, okay, I got to keep going over to the rock. And, and within about 30 seconds, I heard the same sound crampons scraping on ice and the other guy who was with him ended up falling as well. I remember looking over and I was thinking to myself, oh my God, I'm not seeing this. I'm not seeing this. I'm not seeing this. And this guy, his crampons caught in the ice. He actually flipped for, face forward and went right into a, a boulder. Um, you know, and then it was like a marionette kind of tumbling down. And and I, you know, I remember it took me like every ounce of strength I had mentally and physically to get over onto the rock there uh to meet my friends and then we ended up having to do first response and and right. you know and all of that but um but that that shook me up i mean that was um it took me many weeks of um of um you know counseling and i had ptsd i, I didn't know what ptsd was beforehand but you know right. uh, I, I was able to get through that and and just kind of separating what i saw from from myself like my own identity um, so that was, that was probably a big one. Um, but again, you know, again, it's understanding the fear, right? Because after that happened, I would be climbing like just a sort of a, a snow slope and, and I'd freeze and I'd kind of revisualize what was going, like what I saw. And Chantal, she, you know, I remember she was with me on one climb and she's like, she's like, and I, she's, I was just like standing there and she's like, Mike, like, what are you doing? Just, I'm like, I, I can't move. And, you know, so, so I think a lot of it, when we experience something like, I mean, it doesn't have to be as dramatic as that, but like when we experience these things, I think it's important, um, you know, to understand the fear, you know, where's the fear coming from? Is it something to be fear, you know, is that fear justified? Is it, is it, is it warranted? Um, you know, and, 
because fear can can hold us back in many ways. It can be crippling. It can be, you know, especially if we've been traumatized by something. So I think it's really, really important to, to dissect that and, and be like, okay, well, where is that fear actually coming for, from? Is that fear helping me or is it hurting me? And understand why, you know, trying to, you know, understand why it's there. Right. Wow. I, I think one lesson I heard from that was trust, trust your gut. <laughs> <For> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Although who knows if you guys wouldn't have gone up, if you would have been able to first respond for these people and been there to help them, if it was just the two mm-hmm. of them. Um, but crazy circumstances that both of them ended up crashing. And um, yeah, that sounds quite scary to be a part of. I know um, my cousin was part of a rescue this past year where the person didn't make it and he's a backcountry ski patroller. So I could only assume that was, you know, a very traumatizing experience, but you brought up some great points about the PTSD. And I think a lot of athletes may have dealt with this without realizing exactly what it is. For example, when I was in Bali and I crashed my motorbike, it was a cat ran right in front of my tire. I was going about 60 K and I didn't want to hit the cat. So basically it was cat or me. So I, you know, crashed my bike, um, skidded across the road. And I remember it happened so quick. I popped up, I went to the medical quick guy happened right in front of medical. So luckily, um, got all the scratches cut up. We were still half an hour from home. So I had to drive. But for the entire rest of the trip, I could visually see something running in front of my tire. And so I couldn't go up to speed on my bike anymore. I was driving very like cautiously. And then it was almost making me drive more dangerously in a sense, because I'm just so nervous. And there you got to go fast. You have to keep up. You have to kind of do the same thing that everyone else was doing. Yeah, you're doing that that death grip. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so, yeah, like that was my first bout where I was like, I think when I get home, I'm going to need to go to therapy and things because otherwise I'll probably never drive again. Um, And it took a while before I was able to really, you know, get over that. And something similar happened with my mom with with a car crash um, with a deer. And so I think a lot of athletes have had some of these traumas, whether it's big falls or, you know, an ACL tear when you're running. And that can Mm -hmm. really hold you back in what you do next. So I think I'm, I'm, yeah, I thank you for sharing that story because I think if anyone listening and they're wondering why is this fear holding me back in my training and something that's not maybe as dangerous as mountaineering but it could be that your body's holding on to you know you you snapped your ankle when you made this pivot move before so now you're not doing that with as much speed or force anymore there's there's always these things that are um that are connected so i appreciate you bringing that up yeah yeah for sure for sure and i think that yeah no it, it is a good point because it's like you know sometimes these things are so deeply embedded in the subconscious that we just can't peel back the layers unless we have help. Right. So, and I, I, I realized after that, I didn't have the tools to deal with this um, on my own. Usually like things I've dealt with on my own, but this one, I, I did not have the tools to deal with. And, um, and I thought maybe I'll get back into the saddle right away. And then that would be the, the, the thing that I needed, but, but that didn't help either because again, it was just so, you know, actually what happened, the, the counselor explained to me afterwards, she says like, you know, when an animal sees something very, um, like it's it's it sees something that it's very afraid of it tends to like shake and vibrate it out right right um but because i was on that very steep slope or when we have something dangerous you know you on the motorbike um we tend to tense up and and it kind of locks that fear inside of us so that we could get through it so that we can get through it right um so i i buried that fear so deeply inside of me um so that i could just get through that one that one move um that trying to then unlock it again was, um, you know, took, took a lot of, a lot of, a lot of effort. Um, but I think it, you know, the longer we, we let it wait, the harder it is to then unearth it. So I think, yeah. And, you know, as you mentioned, like anyone who happens to be 
feeling something like that, I think it's important to address it sooner than later. Yeah, 100%. And it could be just watching something happen to a friend or a teammate, um, different things. Yeah, it brings back even a lot of thoughts with injuries I saw and I was first responder on snowboarding. Um, and then, you know, having that fear in my own mind as I continued on with competing or training that same day, it's very difficult to overcome. And especially in the sport of snowboarding, you see someone fall in front of you, you're like, okay, competition back on your runs next. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's like, Whoa. Yeah. yeah, yeah totally. ready for this. I need a day or like a few hours at least maybe, but no, yeah. have that time. And often, yeah, people don't have that time. And so, um, yeah. yeah, it's very difficult. Yeah. Yeah. No. And, and, and the other thought that comes to mind is like, sometimes we think that strength is about just plowing forward and, and not, you know, but, but I think it's actually takes more strength and courage to, to face it, you know, to actually do the research and work and, and see what's going on. So, you know, back in, I mean, my parents' days, they might've, they might've just said, Hey, just, you know, suck it up, just go through it. <laughs> like, but I'm like, I don't think that that's necessarily the best way anymore. <laughs> yes. If, if we've learned anything over the past few decades, hopefully it's that um, yeah. conversation yeah. around, yeah, trauma, mental health and all those things definitely has progressed a, a long way since then. For sure. For sure. Yeah, I want to dive now into into your book. Uh, when I first got it, I saw a story of karma. I'm like, oh, a karma! Like, what happened? Like, you're going <laughs> back at somebody, something, you know? Or are you putting out good karma and it's coming back? But obviously, as you mentioned at the start of this, that the family that you're still in contact with, one of the daughters, her name is karma. So I would love for you to give a brief overview and then we can dive deeper, of course, without giving away, you know, the whole book. But um, yeah, mm -hmm. just some insights on this on the story. For sure. Yeah. I mean, just, um, I guess the background information is, um, back in 2011, uh, well, I mean, it had been my dream to go to Nepal and climb there since I was a kid, but, um, back in 2011, we, my wife, Shantana, we sat down with this one gentleman named Mick and, uh, and you know what, when I thought about Nepal back before I went there, um, I always dreamed of going somewhere off the beaten path. Um, you know, at one time I thought maybe I wanted to climb Mount Everest or something like that, but the more I thought about it, the more I just felt like, no, I want to go somewhere that where nobody else is going. And so when we sat down with Mick, um, you know, we were kind of talking about that. And, and Mick had just, you know, he had been trekking over in Nepal for 20 years into some of the most obscure areas. And so he came back and he, and he said, you know, Mike, um, I got to tell you about this place. I got to tell you about the Lost Valley of Narfu. <laughs> and uh, I, was, I was like, whoa, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. it's like, are we in an Indiana Jones movie or something? <laughs> um, but um, but uh, yeah, and then he, you know, he was showing me some of his pictures and I was like, wow, I mean, this valley had been closed off for hundreds of years and it had just been opened up a few years before. This is back in 2011. It had just been opened up a few years before that. So in his pictures, I could see that the people um, you know, we're very authentically connected to the way that they've been living for hundreds of years. Um, again, just way out there in the mountains, several days away from the nearest, you know, road kind of thing up. You have to get hike, hike over these high mountain passes to get there. Um, you know, they grow their own stuff. The, the, the two main villages are at 14,000 feet in elevation. So it's like pure survival out there. Um, there's no, at that time, there was no electricity, no access to, you know, internet or phones or anything like that. Um, not even any books other than the scriptures in the monastery. So these people were kind of like way out there on their own, uh, self-sufficient. And I thought, you know, this is amazing. This is the place that I'm, I'm destined to go to. And, um, and so, um, so Mick also said, he's like, well, now that the Valley has been opened, it's, it's probably going to experience, 
you know, some unprecedented change. Um, so Chantal and I thought, okay, well, why don't we put a little team together of artists? Um, you know, we had a photographer, a musician, a nature artist, and, and Chantal and I, we could do some filming and we thought, well, let's just, um, let's just learn and observe from the people there and kind of like capture a moment in time before things change dramatically. Right. Um, then, and then I came across this picture of, that he had, um, of this, this pyramid looking mountain. It was it literally looked like a white pyramid coming out of the earth. And, you know, as a mountaineering fanatic here, I thought, you know, this is the mountain I'm destined to climb. <laughs> like, this is it. And uh, I said, Meg, I'm like, what is this mountain? Like, you know, what, what is it called? Like, has it been climbed? And he's like, he's like, I don't know. He's like, I, I don't know if it's, if it has a name, if it's even been climbed before. Um, so I thought, you know, okay, we have this intention to kind of document things here, but I, I, in the back of my mind, I was thinking, you know, if there's one thing I'm going to do is I'm going to find and try and climb this mountain. So yes. that was kind of the intention that we we went into this Lost Valley with. Yeah. Oh, wow. That I It goes back to, you know, what you said with, you know, growing up near the mountains, you just have that natural inclination, like, oh, like I have to go and discover that. And so it is interesting how the things that we do really shape the way that we see the world. For example, I'll go around, you know, driving and I will see like street handrails as like, oh, I can grind that on my snowboard. And, you know, <laughs> like that's just my brother and I, if we're driving around, like we'll make jokes back and forth, like, oh, that rail would be so perfect. Like we can come back and film and build a jump onto it and that's the way we see the world or same thing snowboarding like I'll see a line in a mountain if I'm watching a movie I'm like oh imagine like riding down this line or so for you it is cool how the way you see the world seems to be like you spot the mountain in the different area and like that's what I have to do yeah exactly yeah no and and I, I mean yeah well I mean suffice to say there's a lot that happened but um the the objective just totally blew up in my face <laughs> when we got out there like we uh, we got to the mountain uh or you know I, I spent two days of reconnaissance trying to find it uh, with these two sherpa guides and and finally did find it and um and just that's when things started kind of spiraling out of control and um you know for example we got caught in a snowstorm at seventeen thousand feet and and I had this mule that was carrying my climbing gear and it, it ran off and, and you know, it got lost. And, and so all these things started like coming apart. And I, I remember hunkering down in this, in this little village, it was the most remote outpost village in this entire valley. Um, and in the village of Fu. And, and I, I went through like an identity crisis. I was like, you know, why is my dream being crushed? You know, when I'm so, close to it, you know, when I can see it and I can't even get a bit of proper effort here. Like everything's just, all these barriers keep getting thrown up and, and it felt like, um, yeah, I don't know. It felt like, you know, the forces of nature were like literally pushing me away from it. Right. And, uh, and it just kind of, um, yeah, I was, I remember spending two or three days going through like this Jekyll and Hyde, like conversation with myself. Um, you know, why is this happening? And fortunately, you know, team members we were with and my wife, you know, they were very patient. Um, but it got me thinking, it actually had me connecting more with the locals there in that village. And, um, you know, we'd spend days kind of, um, you know, being in their homes, these little stone homes with a, with a dung field stove in the middle. And they'd invite us in and we'd prepare meals together. And, uh, you know, we'd, we'd eat together and, and we, we couldn't, you know, speak each other's language. Um, they speak like an offshoot dialect from of Tibetan. Um, but we would, you know, kind of resort back to the more fundamental ways of human connection, just, you know, through the eyes and, and through gesture and, and, and energetically. And, um, and I remember thinking, you know, 
um, like maybe there's something much deeper here for me to to discover uh, within myself. And, um, you know, maybe it's not about the climb. Maybe it's not about this mountain. I didn't know what, but I just thought, you know, there's this sort of flow of, of events that are are unfolding here. And um, and whatever's happening externally is stronger than my will. So I just have to choose to trust in that. Mm, yeah, I would love to to touch on that of how did you learn to really start trusting your gut and going with that flow? Because for example, in, in the life of an athlete or someone who, you know, they want to start a business or something like that, and they see all these roadblocks are coming, right? And like now in reflection, they might look back and be like, maybe it was a sign that, you know, to redirect me to a different thing. But they're like, oh, no, no, I got to persevere. I got to do this. I Injury after injury or you know, the world's telling you the business idea is not going to work, but you're like, no, no, no. Like I have that in mind. Right. And for you, you had that pyramid mountain as that like goal, that mission. How do you kind of like allow yourself to give in and teach yourself to just, you know, okay, let me let that go and just see where things take me. Yeah, no, that's an excellent question, uh, Natalie. Like, I think it's, um, it's very hard, right. Depending on how, um, attached, whatever that thing is, is to our identity. Mm-hmm. Um, like the stronger it's attached to us, um, you know, the stronger it's, or the more it's part of our identity, the more we feel it's part of our identity, the harder it is to let it go. But, um, but what I can say is that it took a lot of introspection out there in the mountains. I mean, fortunately I was kind of away from everything. I was away from, you know, any sort of influence, electronics, all that. Like I had a lot of time, you know, being out there in the mountains to, to kind of meditate on it. Um, and just observing what was happening, like, well, okay, this, this door is closing, but is there another door? Is there something else that's opening? Like maybe um, what I thought I wanted is being like, is, is gravitationally, um, you know, it's gravitationally moving away from me, but is there something else that's gravitationally, you know, pulling towards me? And, and it's really hard to answer that, you know, until you're kind of really becoming present to it. But, you know, it goes back to also our previous conversation about, you know, exploring the why. Like I, I was in the mountain. I was like, why is this mountain so important to me? What is it about climbing this mountain that is so important? And, um, and trying to drill down that why, like, is it, where is it coming from? Is it ego? Is it, what is it, you know? Um, is it something that I've been taught to believe that this is, You know, where is it? Where is it coming from? Right. Um, I think that's really key to undercovering, you know, or, or uncovering the clues to, um, to to understanding, like, you know, is this something for me or not? Right. And so what I what I what was beginning to surface is um, was when well, if I go back to when we set the intention of going into that valley, the first intention we had set was about, you know, trying to connect, uh, trying to uncover a deep human connection with the people there. That's why we brought these artists together and everything. And, um, and the mountain was kind of more of my mind, you know, it was more in my mind. It was more of an ego goal, I guess you could say. Um, so I realized that, you know, the intention of why we're here is actually, you know, more of a human connection um, journey. And, 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 and what would that uncover within myself? You know, so I, I didn't know at that time, I didn't know where everything was going. Um, but I just had to say, well, I'm just going to trust in this. Obviously it wants me to go into a different direction. You know, there's nothing I can do right now. I can't see where it's leading, 
but I have to just trust in this process. I have to trust in this flow of events. So I think that's kind of the key things is like, you know, understanding the why, um, you know, understanding what is it about that thing that is so attached to our identity and is there something deeper here that's actually at play that could be more meaningful for our lives? Um, so, you know, and it, it's, it's not easy. Like, as I said, like, it's, you know, I, I may, I might just, it's not like a step, Oh, step one, step two. You know, no, it's like, there's a lot of, you know, questioning and, and conversations internally that have to happen. But, but it, I think that's important to, to look at it because trying to force it, right. Trying to like keep that goal and, and just sort of force it through, I think can somehow sometimes do a massive disservice you know, not only could it be potentially dangerous, you know, life-threatening, but um, but it can be doing a disservice for ourselves and, and for others as well. You hinted at a lot of reflection, obviously, and, and self-reflection and self-awareness. Now, I'm curious your take on, do you think it's also partially optimism? Like it's it's also plays in part where, okay, this isn't necessarily going the way I plan. So instead of focusing on, oh, this sucks, like I, this isn't doing well. It's like, if I can just look for those good things and then that ends up being what kind of goes, what going with the flow becomes because those mm-hmm. like, okay, what are those positives still that I can take from here? For sure. Yeah. I, I think that's absolutely, that's a great point. And I think that's, that's a huge part of it as well. Like just looking for, okay, yeah, maybe this is not happening, but what, what is, what is, what else is happening around me that I can look at in a very positive light? And, and yeah, I mean, one of the young, one of the guys I met there, this young man um, by the name of Sanam Dorje, he had just come back from, um, from studying in India. He had left, he was from Fu, but he left when he was seven years old. Um, sorry, when he was 14 years old for seven years. And he had just come back to his village after seven years. He hadn't seen his family, his, his home. Um, and our paths happened to cross exactly at that moment. And so him and I, we would, because I was forced to hunker down in this village, um, him and I would spend days um, just walking the labyrinth of the pathways of his village. And, and we'd be talking. I mean, he'd share with me about Tibetan Buddhism and about the people and, and about, um, you know, the culture and and about the plight of the village and how it was struggling to survive and, and how kids, um, you know, by the time they're five, six years old, they'd have to start working long hours in the field, um, hard labor. Um, many kids before the age of five, um, you know, two out of five kids would die infant mortality rates were high. Um, he was telling me about, you know, girls up there, like by the time they're 15, 16, how they'd have to start getting married, uh, having their own families. And so, you know, learning about all these things, um, you know, I just started thinking also, like, why am I so stressed about something that really doesn't matter? I mean, climbing this mountain, like, it really doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things, when especially there are more, you know, much more important um, things at play here. Right. Yeah. What what are some of those values that you ended up questioning that you had before, but then this whole experience changed for you? Yeah, I I think the main thing was, because I had it in my mind from when I was so young that, you know, climbing in the Himalaya was, um, you know, was, was my dream was, was, was me. Right. So when that got stripped away, it kind of left part of me empty. Like, Oh, mm-hmm. like, what, I mean, if this is not who I am, then who am I? You know? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, so it leaves a bit of a, a bit of a void. Right. But I think that's a beautiful place too, because, um, you know, that's what life is. We, we go through change. We go through growth, through personal expansion. And, um, and, and, you know, and part of me effectively died on the mountainside, but part of me was being reborn. 
Um, and that through that rebirth, it's like, well, that's got so much possibility. I mean, that's got so much beauty. It's got, it's like a blank canvas. It's like, okay, well, what, what, who am I going to create? Like, what is, what's going to come out of that now? Right. Um, So, and and the not knowing, right. I mean, the not knowing sometimes, um, or I think a lot of times there's, um, there's incredible beauty in that. Right. Um, Just not, you know, just having that openness to see what possibilities arise. I love that. I, yeah, that's awesome. Um, can you touch quickly on like the human connection that then you built, especially with, with karma, who obviously the book is entitled. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. So yeah, the title, there's definitely a double meaning there. So a story of karma, the book title. Um, yeah. I mean, karma in the sense of the Buddhist philosophy, cause and effect, and just how our decisions, you know, lead to, 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 to what happens in our lives. Um, and karma, obviously the name of the little girl. So we, because I didn't climb the mountain, we went to this other little village called Nar, and that's where, um, you know, we got there. We discovered that there's this little stone school. And, uh, and so after all the, everything I had learned from this Sanam Dorje had taught me about, you know, the play of the village, how hard it is for education and all that. Um, you know, I thought, well, we should go visit this school and see what's happening there. And, and we get there. And, um, and at the head, there's 17 kids. Uh, and at the head of the class is this little girl, the seven-year-old girl um, teaching the class English numbers. And I just thought, wow, this is what, you know, what's going on here? Um, you know, and, um, and there was something different about her. I, I didn't, you know, I, I wasn't, I couldn't place it at the time, but um, something almost familiar or familial, um, you know, not in the way that she looked, but just kind of energetically right uh i mean we had seen hundreds of kids but for some reason there was something different about her um and anyway we we found the teacher the real teacher he was kind of looming at the back of the class and uh and he told us you know he was far away from his own people his own village uh he was like two weeks away and he felt like he had been banished to the end of the earth he had no desire to really be there um and while this conversation was going on uh, the kids caught sight of Michael's guitar, you know, this, our musician, <laughs> and uh, he had his guitar slung over his shoulder. And, and uh, they, the kids had never seen a guitar before, right, let alone heard one. Um, so you could tell that they wanted some music. And and Michael, he's an entertainer. He just gets up there. He starts teaching them some music. And the kids are, like, getting into it. They're singing and dancing. And and then soon, like, the, the teacher gets motivated. Um, and he brings out this Nepali drum. And he wanted... Um, he wanted the girls, uh, or sorry, he wanted the kids to dance in front of us one at a time. And he started with this little girl who had been uh, so confident in teaching these numbers. He told her like, dance, you know, dance in front of these people, almost like in a very commanding voice. And and um, you could just see her crumbling. Like she was just, um, she was just almost internally crying, like just petrified, right? Standing there. And, um, and so Chantal couldn't take it. Chantal's like, she just marched up there next to the little girl and started her best impression of this Nepali dance. Um, not that Chantal knows how to do a Nepali dance, but <laughs> um, she was just going going for it. And um, and this little girl, you could see immediately how she just forgot about everybody watching. And she just focused, I mean, their eyes locked. Um, and the little girl, she started copying, trying to copy Chantal's improvised dance moves. Um, and the two of them were like these two spirits kind of, dancing together in front of these 7,000 meter peaks. I mean, it was absolutely beautiful, the scene there. Um, and uh, 
so that was kind of the um the spark that uh that opened up this this connection to we found out the little girl's name is karma and her sister pemba and their family and uh, again this is all back in 2012 and 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 just from there how it opened up into the most profound relationship of my life you know the most meaningful connection um you know how we've grown together we've become sort of family the two 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 families here and and we're Chantal and I are, are co-parenting with their parents um you know bringing kind of these two worlds together you know I mean I remember their father said to me once he he said um you know two things he said you know one was that he never wants his girls to forget where they're from like never wants them to forget their cultural roots their dharma um and he said but he feels like he's kind of taken them as far as he can for this modern world that's encroaching into their village as we speak and and he felt like you know that they can move kind of farther in life um you know under with Chantal and I being there um so we've been kind of yeah it's been a beautiful relationship over the years just sort of navigating all these different dichotomies in our world like how do you prepare these two little girls from the middle of the mountains um you know with the tools to to have choice in the world um and for the modern world when the modern world's coming at them very quickly um and do it in a way where they don't lose control over who they are um so yeah so it's just been a beautiful journey and 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 I could have never imagined that you know that this mountain would have just opened up this kind of connection, um, this very profound and meaningful connection. It's, it's so cool. And uh, yeah, I, I love that story. And um, I want, you know, people to read the story. So where can people get it? When can they get it? Um, yeah, so the book uh, recently just came out uh, as published um, by a local publisher, Rocky Mountain Books, which is just very values based. Um, but uh, a story of karma, you can get it at independent bookstores. So local local bookshops, Indigo, um, they'll be able to have it if they don't have, it, they can order for sure. Um, or Amazon, things like that. Um, yeah. And if you want to learn more, you can visit my website too. It's just um, michaelschauch.com. So that's M-I-C-H-A-E-L-S-C-H-A-U-C-H dot com. Perfect. Yeah, we'll, we'll definitely put that in the show notes. Well, it was so great to learn um, some of those things and all about mountaineering. I have two questions I always end things with. Mm. Um, the first one is out of all the habits that you have in your day-to-day life, what is the one biggest game changer for you? Oh, <laughs> um, probably laughing. <laughs> I like it. Well, it kind of goes back to what you said too, like just sometimes shifting the lens a little bit. um, And sometimes it just takes a small shift to see all the good things around us. Wow. I love that. The last one is if you are at the end of your life and you're looking back in one word, what's the impact that you wanted to have made? Hmm. I I just, I mean, this is not really one word, but I just want to do the right thing. Mm, I like that. I'm not worried about, you know, what people say or legacy or anything. I just want to make sure I do the right thing with the time I have here. That's awesome. And it seems like you have a strong gut feeling uh, in the moment of, you know, what are those right things and those right decisions? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Awesome. 
Well, I really appreciate you sharing your time with me, talking about the book, but also talking about mountaineering and all the different things you've been through and the mindset, the fear, um, the identity challenge, the self-awareness, the values. Um, I will definitely put the uh, your website in the show notes to make sure people can go and get the book. Um, and thank you again for sharing your story. Thank you so much, Natalie, for, for doing this and for having me on. It's been a, been a great conversation. Hey, I think that the greatest gift in life is presence. So thank you so much for gracing me with your presence of tuning in to this episode. Now, something that I would appreciate a ton and would help this podcast keep growing is if you, one, take a screenshot of this episode and share it on your social media so more people can find the podcast and hopefully we can help impact more people. As well as number two is if you can leave a rating and a written review. That means so much. And once again, thank you for being here.